The scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by sages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the water, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. And because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Oh, it's a fun one. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for speaking to us through it again. God, we thank you for showing, our, showing us ourselves in it. So we ask that you would help us to, uh, to encounter your word well. Uh, and most importantly, God, to encounter Jesus through it. And it's by his spirit and in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, I, I came across an article recently with the headline, Does Being Sad or Complaining Make You Smarter? It described an Australian study which found that people in a negative mood tended to be more critical of and pay more attention to their surroundings than happier people who are more likely to believe what they were told. The study found that the positive moods tended to promote creativity, flexibility, cooperation, while negative moods tended to trigger more careful thinking, paying greater attention to the external world. Now, the fact that the study comes from Australia gives me a little bit of pause, because anyone who has read Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day can tell you or will know that that's exactly where Alexander wanted to go, and he was quite the complainer. So it casts a little bit of doubt on that. Um, but the overwhelming evidence tends to demonstrate that grumbling, complaining, and quarreling is detrimental to our health and our relationships. Apart from this one study, the one from Australia, that again, I'm doubting, uh, most of the, uh, excuse me, yeah, most of the uh, uh, most of the evidence tends to, to point in the direction that this is not, not good for us. Studies have shown, including one from the Journal of Personality, that grumbling and complaining lead to increased feelings of anxiety and depression. These behaviors have also been shown to have negative physical health effects. 
Uh, research has shown that people who complain frequently have higher levels of cortisol, a hormone associated with stress, which can lead to a range of health problems, including increased blood pressure, weight gain, and weakened immune function. And we all know that complaining has some serious uh, social consequences as well. Studies have found that people who complain frequently are perceived as less likable, less trustworthy, and less competent than those who don't complain as much. And yet, we still complain all of the time, don't we? And study after study shows that we are more inclined to express negative feelings, negative emotions than positive ones. We have what researchers call a, quote, negativity bias, which means that we pay more attention to and remember negative stimuli more than positive. In one classic study, participants were shown a series of emotionally arousing images, some of which were positive, like puppies and flowers, and some of which were negative, like snakes and car crashes. Snakes are just negative, like there's no positive connotation. Now, when asked to recall the images they had seen, participants were more likely to remember the negative images than the positive ones. And our text this morning demonstrates that this is nothing new. See, God's people, the people of Israel, at this point in our text, have seen God act on their behalf in some amazingly powerful ways. He has rescued them from slavery, brought Pharaoh, the most powerful man of the most powerful emperor, empire at the time, brought Pharaoh to his knees by subjecting him to 10 plagues or 10 acts of decreation. God has parted a sea so that the Israelites could cross safely on dry land to the other side. God provided food from heaven as well as water in a desolate place. But here in our text, once again, they face a difficult circumstance. But do they remember all of the good things that God has done for them? No. They give in to their negativity bias, and they begin grumbling and complaining, quarreling with Moses, which in reality is quarreling with God. So think for a minute. Are there places right now where you are grumbling and complaining? Are there areas where you are doubting God's goodness and his ability to provide? I think that's all of us. And if that's the case, then this text is for you, which means that this text is for every person in this room. So I want to dig into this text and see what it has to teach us about ourselves and our own relationship with God. But first, I want to take a few minutes to set the scene. So let's look at the context. All right, so when we were first introduced to the Israelites in the book of Exodus, and as a church, we've been walking through the book of Exodus in snippets, looking at the life of Moses. But when we were first introduced to the Israelites, who were God's people, they were slaves in Egypt. And there was a wicked Pharaoh who was nervous about the Israelites and, and their growth and expansion. And so he treated them as slaves and increased their labor, bringing about more and more pain and hardship. Well, the people cried out to God and God listened and he raised up Moses through a series of unexpected events to lead his people out of Egypt and out of bondage. And God used Moses in dramatic fashion, bringing about ten plagues in which God seemed to be reversing his created order. 
And these plagues proved to be devastating for Pharaoh and his nation, and he eventually let the people leave, only to change his mind soon thereafter. And the people of Israel were led out into the wilderness only to learn that they were being pursued by their previous captors. But God made a way where there was no way, opening the Red Sea so that his people could cross on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to follow the path carved out by God to save the Israelites, to bring an end to them, we read that the waters were turned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Well, this prompts Moses and his sister, the prophetess Miriam, to lead the people of Israel in worship. Moses composes a beautiful song that goes from uh, chapter 15, verse 1, all the way through verse 18. And Miriam gathers the women and with dancing and tambourines sings, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. All right, so things are going well for the Israelites at this point. There's triumph. There's glory, which then should lead to faith and trust, love of God in one another. But that's not really what ends up happening. See, after being rescued by God and singing his praises, the people of Israel soon encounter a problem. And we read about that problem in chapter 15, verses 22 and 23. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah is the Hebrew word for bitter. Now, water, as you likely know, is not the sort of thing that, that one can just do without. So a journey into the wilderness without drinkable water, this is not a, a good or pleasant thing. But the people quickly recall all that God has done for them to this point, and so they trust in God to provide, right? No, no. We read in verse 24, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So Moses cries out to God, and God provides a solution. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. God is gracious, crisis averted. But they continue on in their journey, and another issue arises. In chapter 16, verses 2 through 3, we read, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, What? What that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." Miraculous rescue after miraculous rescue apparently didn't matter because the people were hungry and they became anxious about how long their hunger would persist, which then led them to become hangry. And they began to assert some terrible things about Moses, but ultimately in asserting those terrible things about Moses, they are asserting terrible things about God. But God is gracious once again, and in the next verse we read, 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. Well, all of this background prepares us for what we see in our text this morning. And our passage, once again, begins with a problem. And what exactly is the problem? Well, we read about that in verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Well, we've been here before, right? right, We have seen this play. Now, something that likely would have exacerbated the situation was the name of the place where the people were camped. The name Rephidim means resting place. But when they get there, there's no water. It'd be very hard to rest in the place called rest when you're not sure if you're going to be able to survive there. But third time's the charm. This is the third time they found themselves in a position without necessary provision. God has come through in the last two times, right? So this is the time when they're going to trust, right? Let's look at the people's response in verses 2 through 3. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? My wife Katie and I were talking about this passage the other night, and I was describing to her the context of the different scenes leading up to this passage, much like I did just a few minutes ago. And all of the places where the Israelites fail to trust and grumble, and and here is yet another example of that. And and Katie's response was, that's the most human story I've ever heard. And I think she's right. right, This is such a face-palm moment for God's people. Like, really guys, like we're, we're doing this again? But haven't we all been there at one time or another? My brother is, is also a pastor, and uh, he serves a church up in San Francisco. And he moved up there initially uh, about 13 or 14 years ago to plant a, a different church, a church that he's no longer serving at, but the church is still up and, and, and doing well. Um, but I remember being with him uh, in that transition. I was, I was still back in college. My brother had just graduated from seminary, and so he was moving from San Diego where he attended seminary. Uh, he went to Westminster there uh, and was moving uh, up, up to San Francisco. And it was just me and him in the U-Haul, and we were going to get there before the rest of his family arrived and uh, try to get some semblance of order going and, and, and all of the things. And on the, on the ride, again, it's just me and him in the U-Haul, he was, we were talking and he was excited about this new ministry opportunity. He felt called by God to go to this place, but he was also really nervous. Uh, he had just spent the last few years in grad school where you know, he was spending money to go to school and not earning a lot of money, and he was in the process of moving to one of the most expensive parts of the country to be a pastor. And if you're like rolling in it as a pastor, you're doing it wrong. Right? <laughs> so he's, he's just contemplating like, you know, God, I feel like you're calling me into this place, but I don't really know how you're going to provide. So we're having this conversation, a little bit of time passes, and we pull off to get gas. 
And, you know, my brother is starting to talk about how expensive gas was. So even the, even the journey getting up there was, was stressful. But he noticed that there was something in his visor. And so he, he opened the visor and out fell onto his lap an envelope. And in that envelope was a check. And it was a substantial check that one of the, uh, one of the people in his uh, previous church, the church that he attended when he was in seminary and had served at, had unbeknownst to my brother just sort of slipped in there. And it was a way for this person to tell my brother, you know, I'm supporting you, I believe in you, I believe that God has called you to this place. But ultimately, this was one of the ways in which God was proving that he was going to provide. I have countless stories like that, just none quite as dramatic with money falling from the ceiling. But I think anyone who has is, who is served God for any length of time can point to moments in their lives where they see God showing up, God providing in unexpected and powerful ways. But what happens to us when we encounter a new difficulty, a new problem that we weren't expecting? When we're doing well, we, we remember how God's past faithfulness, but oftentimes... The, for, the thing on the forefront of our mind is the negative thing right in front of us, right? So often our negativity bias prevails. God provides over and over and over again, but when confronted with a new and difficult circumstances, what do we do? We, we panic, we grumble, we complain. And worse yet, we often impute negative motives or intentions onto God. One of the things that's kind of humorous in this text is that the accusations, that you know, the Israelites have been throwing them at God throughout their journey, they get worse here. This, third, this is the third time that the Israelites have asked Moses if he brought the people out into the wilderness to kill them. And here this third time, Moses apparently isn't, isn't just out to get the people, he's also going after their children and their cows, right? But they ask, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now, they're talking to and quarreling with Moses, but Moses in his response reminds them that even though they're addressing him, that their beef is really with God. And this is ultimately what happens when we complain. We may not name God, but when we grumble and complain about our circumstances, we are really grumbling and complaining about the God who is in control of them. There's a, a play called The Sign of Jonah, and it was written by Gunther Rittenborn, so just pretend that I said that with a fantastic German accent. And it was first performed in West Berlin shortly after World War II. And the goal, of the, plane, or the goal of the play was to figure out who was really responsible for the atrocities of World War II, namely the Holocaust. Who was to blame? And it works its way, the play works its way down the line. It asks, is it the stormtrooper? Well, that person was merely following orders. The industrialist was just concerned with keeping up production. The average citizen may not have gotten involved at all, but as each group is called out and is called on to defend their innocence, they become an accuser. And it comes to light that at the end of the day, everyone is guilty. Some by what they did, others by what they didn't. 
by what they didn't do or failed to do. And suddenly, the accused accusers all take up another cry. They say, we are to blame, yes, but we're not the most to blame. The real blame belongs much higher. God is to blame. God must go on trial. Now, in our text, this is the third test that has taken place in the wilderness. God tested the people at Mara, the first time the people found themselves without water. He tested them again with the manna. We see that in, 16, in uh, Exodus 16:4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will, whether they will walk in my law or not. So God is testing the people two times here. And, and I think it's important before we move on to note that God's tests are ultimately an invitation into relationship with him. Right? They're an invitation to trust in him. And I can say that with confidence because of one extremely important detail. Notice the tests follow the people's redemption. They don't precede it. God has saved the people. He has redeemed them. He has brought them into safety, and he doesn't issue tests to see if they're worthy of it. No, he, he does this, and then he tests them as a way of, of saying, will you trust me? Will you live with me? <laughs> Remember when I, when I finished grad school, uh, for about two years, I had this recurring dream uh, that I had a final that I just hadn't studied for, and I knew I was about to fail, or a, a paper that I just didn't turn in. It was great. Um, and, and there were times when, uh, you know, the dreams would be particularly vivid and I would wake up with just this, this sense of doom. It's like, I, I can't graduate now, even though I had graduated like two years prior. But that's how our tests work, right? Typically, when, when we have tests, there is something that we're going for. Right? We, we're wanting to get a degree or wanting to get some sort of license. So we're tested in order to see if we are worthy. Can we... Can we achieve this thing? And, and the goal is held over our head based on our performance in the test. But again, that is not how God's tests work. God tests the people after he has already saved them. And the test isn't, will you prove yourself worthy? No, the test is, will you trust me? So God has tested the people twice. And in our text, we encounter a third test. But this time, it's not the people who are being tested. See, Moses asks the people in verse 2, why do you test the Lord? And this is how other biblical passages describe what happened here as well. But this test isn't just a test. This is actually a trial. See, much of the language indicates the people's intention to initiate a legal proceeding against Moses, but really Moses is just a proxy for God himself. And how do we know this? Well, twice this event is described, when this event is described here in verse 2, and then again when it's described in Deuteronomy 33, the Hebrew word riv is used, translated quarrel in both places. And that word quarrel here and in other places, here and other places, is actually a, a legal term. This was the technical term for a covenant lawsuit. And when God quarrel, or when the people quarrel with God, they bring a list 
of charges. God hasn't provided and is therefore guilty of murder, or at least he will be soon. And they have a sentence in mind, the death penalty. Look at verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They knew they couldn't kill God, but they could kill his representative. And stoning was the conventional way to carry out a death sentence in that culture. And there's more. In verse 5, God said to Moses, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. See, in ancient times, the assembly of elders passed judgment on disputed matters. So it seems that when Moses gathered them together on this occasion, he was convening a court. And he's told to take up his staff. And a rod or a staff was an ancient symbol of authority, and it was an instrument of judgment. And in Exodus, it represents God's power and authority as judge. The last thing I'll point to you to make the case that the people are making a case are the place names. Look at verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Both Massah and Meribah are legal terms. Massah means to test, and Meribah means to strive, to argue, to dispute, or to contend. And this last term is a participle derived from the Hebrew word riv, which we already pointed out is the technical term for a covenant lawsuit. The famous Old Testament scholar Gerhard von Rad, looking at this text, concluded that the names Massa and Meribah imply that legal cases were investigated and decided by ordeal there. The Israelites were actually doing what Rutenborn envisioned in his play. They put God on trial. Man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And this, friends, is essentially what, essentially what we do when we complain when we grumble against God. Now, does this mean that we have to pretend that everything that happens to us is good? Is there never a place for us to come to God with our hurts? No, there most definitely is. In fact, we're instructed to do exactly that. In 1 Peter 5, 7, we're told, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And we see people all throughout Scripture doing exactly that. And one of the things that makes the Psalms so powerful is their brutal honesty about the pain and hardship of life in this world. No, we are allowed to be real about what is hard. We need to be real about what is hard, but we're called to do so from a place of trust. And what sets this incident apart as negative is the lack of trust. They're not saying, Lord, I don't know how much I have left in me, I need water, please provide. No, they're saying, God, you are cruel. That's why we're out here. This has all been a big game for you, and it's going to end with us and our children and our cows dead in the wilderness. Do you see the difference? God does not promise to give us an easy life. In fact, he guarantees the opposite. As Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. We're not supposed to ignore our troubles or pretend that they don't exist. The call, though, is for us to trust God in the midst of trouble. 
And God's response to the people, I think, is the ultimate evidence as to why we can trust God in the midst of trouble. So let's look now at God's response. I want to read once again uh, verses 5 through 6. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. See, when the people seek to put God on trial, what is God's response? He submits to it. That's crazy, right? I think about how you might respond if the tables were turned. There have been times in, in our house uh, when our toddlers will call into question some of the ways that, that Katie and I approach things. Uh, one manifestation of that, uh, our son Oliver, who's five, as he's not a toddler anymore, um, but he has learned about the existence of north, south, east, and west, and that, in his mind, makes him an expert navigator. So there are times when, when you know, we're driving, and he'll call out from his car seat, I don't think this is the right way. <laughs> okay, son. <laughs> he has no idea where we're going. Um, so we've, we've ended up establishing a rule that the only people allowed to give input in the car are those who have licenses to drive. But when either of our kids do that, both mine and Katie's gut inclination is to remind them that, remind them that they've been alive for all of five minutes. And I understand that it's, it's part of development and, and all of the things, but even still, right, when called into question, there's a, there's a degree of indignation. Now, that's a silly example, but when we are put on trial, when we are called into question, I think it is natural for our defenses to go up, for us to get indignant, for us to think, how dare you question me? We who are limited in knowledge, wisdom, resources, we who are fallen often feel this way when we're called out. Now, if that's how we can feel, how should we expect God, who is not limited in any of those ways, or fallen, how should we expect Him to feel when called to account? If you were to become angry or indignant, it would be the most righteous anger, the most righteous indignation imaginable. But that's not at all how He responds. Instead, he allows himself to be put on trial. He says to Moses, Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb. Now, the Old Testament scholar Kenneth Lang Harris has pointed out, in, uh, pointed out how in this text, and he says many other interpreters have noticed this as well, that there's a close identification between the presence of God and the rock itself. And what does God tell Moses to do? He says, you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Who has done wrong in this instance? Who is the guilty party? 
It's the people. But who is struck? It's God. The commentator Philip Ryken writes, God delivered his people by submitting to his own rod of judgment, taking the judgment in Moses' place. And that reality is made much more powerful when we, looking back, see Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10.4. Pointing to this event, he says, the rock was Christ. See, this incident in the wilderness pointed forward to the day when Jesus would be struck for our sin. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus in this way. He says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. And notice what flows from the rock in the wilderness. It is life-giving water. In his gospel, John records how, in order to confirm that Jesus was dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The blood was the blood that was shed for our sins. But John also mentioned the water, not simply to prove that Jesus died on the cross, but also to show that by his death, he gives life. As Jesus said earlier in his gospel, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Earlier in the service, we sang these beautiful words, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. So why can we trust God in the midst of trouble? Why, why can and should we avoid grumbling and complaining? How do we know that God loves us even when things seem to be crumbling all around us? Because Jesus the rock of ages, was willing to be cleft. That means split apart for us. See, even if you feel like you are all alone, like God has abandoned you, the gospel assures us that he has not. The one who allowed himself to be struck for us will never leave or forsake us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning first confessing, confessing our own lack of trust our own tendency to grumble or complain, our own tendency when confronted with difficult circumstances to panic, our tendency to remember the negative things over, uh, over and above the ways in which you have provided for us. Father, forgive us for that. But Lord, by your Spirit, we ask that you would help us 
to see your goodness this morning. Help us to trust in you because, God, you have proven yourself to be trustworthy. Lord, we thank you for being our rock, for being a firm foundation for us. But, God, we thank you for being the rock who was willing to be cleft on our behalf. Father, we thank you for your amazing love. A love that we don't deserve. A love that is given to us solely as a gift of grace. We thank you for the love that saves us. The love that forgives us. And for the love that was willing to go to the cross for us. Lord, help us to cling to that. Help that to be the realest thing about us. Help us to remember that the next time we're confronted with a difficult circumstance. Please give us assurance by your Spirit that you are there with us no matter what. And it's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.